In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witnessed. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming, but everybody can see that moment where I just saw it. It's going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Guys, welcome back to the Incense Podcast. I'm Blaine. And I'm Sam. And... We are actually hitting record while we're still reviewing our notes because actually... We're professionals. We realize that this part of the conversation might be helpful. Yeah, the amount of times beforehand we have to cut ourselves off because when you say something the second or third time, it just doesn't have the same emotions. Funny story on that. Surprise. Wonder. When a friend of mine wanted to introduce himself to the woman who actually ended up becoming his wife, he picked the sentence, I'm sorry, I'm afraid I forgot to introduce myself because I had met the day before. And then later he lamented and he was like, do you realize how hard that is to say naturally as though you just thought of it? And so he kind of blew it and went up and, I'm sorry, I'm afraid I forgot to intra. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh my so gosh. not only is it hard, but also pick an easy thing to say if you're going to repeat it. You asked where I thought this conversation would go. And here's the structure that I have, is that there is, there's an external mm-hmm. uh, dimension to this conversation, mm-hmm. like the position of men and women in the world and thinking about that. Whoa. And the ways that that's been provoked by having a daughter and having a son. And then there's the internal dimension in like personal insecurity, ambivalence, discovering the unique fears that have been triggered by mm-hmm. having a daughter and then having a son. Right. So what if we went that way? Uh, outside in. The, the opposite way I was expecting. <laughs> the Not, opposite way Pixar was expecting. If, uh, gosh. Yeah. No, this is, this is why this, this works, Blaine. You know, because if I think we're going to go one way, you think we're going the other way. And that way we cover all the bases. That's, it's just, it's, it's the full picture. It's a really so the, optimistic description of difference. <laughs> when I think we're going to be on the same page. That's because of my glasses half full person. But. You're on a different page, which means we have twice as many pages. Cats, cats can be glasses half full people too. I'm working on this. So I gave you this prompt the other day because I thought about it a long time ago when we were sitting around a fire celebrating the arrival of your son. We now both have a son and a daughter. They're very young. At the time of this recording, they're all three years old or less. And one day they will listen to this and go, gosh, dad, you sounded so young. Look at the pictures. You didn't have any wrinkles. I'm going to be like, you gave them to me. But right now there's this innocent and fresh reaction to their entry into the world that I think is only going to get more complex or more uh, accustomed. We're going we're gonna to get used to what it's like, and therefore it's going to be harder to identify these things, which is sort of why the intro of this podcast is so fitting, right? Because there's this, when I have not sat with the thing too long, in this case, the thing being having kids, I think it's going to be a little bit more honest of a reaction. And so that's why I wanted to go that direction. But it does expose, I was going to work the other way. It's fine. I'm going to be either direction. So the prompt is that we both have a son and a daughter. How have we responded to their difference? The difference of having a boy versus having a girl. What's that revealed about you? What's that revealed about me? And all of the implications that we can see into the future in the world as we are navigating a son and a daughter in the 21st century. That's a big topic. I think that it's only fair that as the person who asked the question, you be first to give an answer. And this is what I'm wondering. You chose with both kids to not find out what you were having, to let it we're be. We were having human beings. You were having, you were having humans. You 
New and Hope that much. <laughs> sure did. But beyond that, you didn't know who these people were. You didn't know very much about them. And right. so, do you remember your first impression? What happened when, literally in the moment of her arrival, you realized that you had a daughter? Yeah, I, in both cases, was meant to be the individual receiving the child at birth. Um, but what I've learned about myself is that I am so surprised by the entry of this little being at the moment of birth that I become quite useless. <laughs> and so much that we did a water birth with our son and I was pretty content to like watch him bob around like an apple at some sort of autumn festival rather than uh, grab him and bring him to mom that the midwife had to step in. And I, so in both cases, I was supposed to be the one to do that and figure out the gender or, or the sex. It's like a super fun story though. Well, the midwife no. loves telling that one of, Looking at me, your son looking at her. came really fast because your daughter came really slow and you just thought, no way. And then looked over and was like, Sam, there's a baby Sam, in the pool. As there's just a baby floating in it. <laughs> she, she said, no, it was, it was about half a second. Like, Time it was slows very, down though when you have kids. It was very, very brief. Um, maybe I just stood still. I don't know. Yeah, right. <sighs> in either case, I anticipated being the one to discover if it was a boy or a girl. And didn't because I was so stupefied by there being a person. And I do remember this, like, a couple of minutes there, we had this little person on my wife's chest. And we have no idea if they are a boy or a girl. There's just that first sexless, genderless, like, you are a person and my world is blown and look at you you slimy alien you I, I love you so much and i'm also terrified and all of those emotions that hit and then someone saying like have you checked like, uh, no i don't know who this is yet and lifting up the little blanket and being like you're a girl oh my gosh you're a girl holy crap what am I going to do? Right. Which, to be fair, is also the reaction I had when we found out I was a boy um, the second time. So there's, at least there's some consistency there. I'm totally anticipating this happening again when we ever we have a third, which we hope to have someday. That it would be like this, oh my gosh, there's another one. What am I going to do? Even though I did this on purpose. <laughs> For real, though. <laughs> there is the significance of a person. It does have that response. There is a kind of... Both cases, I agree. What am I going to do? Em likes to tell this story where we became pregnant right about the time that uh, my wife's brother passed away. So we were in a stressful season. Everything was thrown off. We did not notice. We did not realize that we were pregnant until we were pretty far along and... People go, well, I didn't you see the cues and go think of the cues for the first trimester and then think of the cues for life-changing grief. They're very similar. And so we just missed them, realized that we were pregnant. And because we wanted to give birth at home, we needed to know when the baby was due. So we had to go get an ultrasound to figure out how old is this baby probably and we were convinced that it was a boy because on a hunting trip the previous fall when we were praying about a family, I heard Jesus say that. It was one of those back and forths and when is the right time and it's, you know, and you're going to have a son and here's his name and went, okay. So I, you know, I was in, I know who this person is. And then we had that incredible moment where the tech gave us the most deadpan, do you want to know who it is? Yes. And it looks like that's a girl. And, you know, just the room froze. It was so, it was so shocking because I was so not just, it wasn't just an intuition. It was an intuition that had been confirmed by an experience with God. And I'm like, it's a girl? That's not possible. And then we just went out happily stupefied, went and got burgers downtown. And we sat there and one of the first things I said was, it's a girl. I love her already. I'm going to kill everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but 
because you immediately felt the vulnerability of her. Yes. And that's where sort of the external thing starts where, man, there's so much to say on the, on the internal me side. But which the, you, you want to get to second. Which we will get to. Oh, yeah. Okay. We will get to. Well, I thought we were going to get to it first, but, you know, tomato, potato. Tomato, as tomato. They say. I remember being an undergraduate and being given this report from the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women as a part of a class. And it was statistics relating to the different spheres of life and sort of explaining, you know, where are women in the world and what do they do? And one of the initial findings and the reason that the report had been published was that a massive number of women were, in quotes, missing. And the report ended up being titled The Slaughter of Eve. And it went, there's a biological norm, and I think it's 52% male to 48% female, like with humans. But it's roughly 50-50. And instead of having populations that matched each other, there was this massive missing segment of women and they just kind of went in and started going in infancy women die more and as a strategy of war women die more there's a organization called political violence at a glance that just as research related to war and they have a number of interesting papers that relate to the way that conflict or any international unrest disproportionately affects women and when I realized that I was going to have a daughter, this all suddenly, the, the world in which she was being born became very, very real. And mm -hmm. my friends can tell you that if there's sort of a trigger that makes me just see red and have a massive rush of adrenaline and stop responding with sympathy and patience, it's any conversation about the status of women and violence against women in the world. And there, there was this initial like, oh, crap. Uh, spoiler alert here. I actually had the same oh, crap experience, but it was different when I realized that I was going to have a son because mm -hmm. of uh, the ways that a fallen world expresses itself towards men. But I, I really remember going, whoa. This is a big deal, and the fallenness of the world and the extent to which we're at war in the world now feels very personal and overwhelming. And, you know, just things like this. In the year that Ailish was born was also the year of the 2016 election, and it was Hillary running against Donald and just this melee that I'm sure we're going to see something worse this year, but it was like... What a crazy right. world to be born into. What verbal violence in the background while we're actually anticipating the birth of this mm -hmm. eternal being. Oh, and just regardless of your politics, regardless of where you fall in those lines, there were some people and myself among them in certain moments where the election, uh, the candidacy of Donald Trump boil down to someone who has sexually assaulted women and they could have a litany of accusations and a good percentage of our country could say, we're okay with that. We will actually elect you to our highest political office. And everything else was off the table. It was just that sentence alone struck great horror and grief into me. Truly, this is the status of, of women and, and women's story in this moment in time. Right. I can hear the arguments because I've had that conversation about, you know, the questionable morality of presidents across time and having your eyes on the Supreme Court, oh, et cetera, I know, et cetera. I know, I but, know, but everybody's smeared in mud. Right. But when we just make it a conversation about the fallenness of humanity, it becomes like, okay, make it somebody else's country. And just go, wow, humanity has not improved and humanity is not kind to women. 
apart from the restoration of God. And right. you get that in, you know, Genesis 3 and Revelation 12, like war on the woman and her offspring. And right. just this very personal experience of violence. Well, I mean, you want to go back to Genesis, there's been a few times where we've talked about this at boot camps of just going, Lucifer was the most glorious angel next to God. And then he fell and Eve is the crowning jewel of creation. So she is now carrying glory in a way that the fallen Lucifer doesn't. And there is a particular hatred there across time. And just to have that as a category, be like, okay, okay, politics aside, can you look at the trajectory of history and violence? And we were, Susie and I were watching a John Oliver the other day on China's one-child policy. They have a new update. They've actually gone to a two-child policy. So congrats over there, still meddling with the human reproductive system. But to look at decades of infanticide and forced or intentional abortions for the sake of getting rid of the unwanted daughters so that they could have a son for often financial well-being. There's a provision there for a family that a son brings in that context. And you go like, if your heart cannot break hearing that, what is in the way? Yeah. Oh, I just want to mention a couple other things that informed my response to having a daughter. But uh, 2018, census data sort of revealed that when it came to the median income, you know, women only made, we know about the gender pay gap, 82% of what men made. And that had followed enormous progress. Where in 1970, it was only 61%. But sort of 2010 on, we live in a world where that quote-unquote progress has stalled. There's a report that we'll throw in the footnotes that's like, yeah, but that change has largely stopped. And something else I thought was interesting is that even as traditionally female industries like healthcare uh, are taken over by men, like, you know, the population of male nurses is growing especially as manufacturing and other jobs go away. But those jobs pay less than comparable jobs in other industries. One other thing that I think is interesting, did you know that if women are involved in peace negotiations, they are 20% more likely to form a lasting peace than if there's no women at the table, which is too bad. Oh, I had no idea. Because women are only at the table... And you're between like 1% and 9% of the time, depending on what study you look at. Ugh. So I went, oh my gosh, the world is violent to women. And then here's the shift. It's like her wholeheartedness is not an option in a violent world. I don't know that I can do this. Right. Oh, I can't believe you didn't drop in some etymology for us, Blaine. This is one of my favorite, like, the pieces of etymology that I've held on to are less academic and more for, like, a party where there's cocktails being served and you need to, like, That's have these sort of things. Sounds fun. Uh, the roots of hysterical yeah. and hysteria. I was thinking of that. What is it, Sam? Okay, well, they're actually related to the uterus, and it's considered— a hysterectomy. Right, which is where they remove the uterus. And so that there was this idea in— early medicine that if someone was being out of control and a woman particularly was being out of control is because of her wandering uterus and the best way to solve her emotional instability was to remove her reproductive organs so yeah there's a there's a just a nice context that as a as a man there's no shame on you young man listener if you have not been aware of this but it would be good to become aware of it. And as you said, Blaine, like becoming the father of a daughter made it uh, about a thousand percent more real and more important. And I want to say, I have many friends from college who are choosing not to have kids because to invite a son or a daughter into this world that is at war, that is doing violence to all of humanity is just too much for them. And they don't want to do that. And to those 
friends, like my heart breaks to go like, it is truly like, it is better to be inviting young beings into this world that they get to bring life and goodness where they go rather than being overwhelmed by the darkness. And so that's where part of our story, like we had our daughter first, kind of, we had her after our miscarriage that was highly traumatic and heartbreaking. And it's it's a podcast I'd love to have a conversation on another time, but we felt particularly geared towards like, I want to invite you into this world. I want to say yes to the potential of goodness. And the daughter arrived. And immediately I thought of this, this quote I love from Garrison Keillor. The father of a daughter is nothing but a high-class hostage. A father turns a stony face to his sons, berates them, shakes his antlers, paws the grounds, snorts, runs them off into the underbrush. But when his daughter puts her arm over his shoulder and says, Daddy, I need to ask you something. He is a pat of butter in a hot frying pan. Garrison's way of interacting with his sons aside, like I did feel that way with the arrival of my daughter. Like she evoked in me all of the places that I didn't know that I could delight and feel vulnerable in another being in a really good way. Like my daughter carries my attention and my delight and a sense of vulnerability that like that needed to come out if that makes sense there there were places where i thought i was keeping myself safe by not naming these vulnerabilities that i do have of of emotion or of a taste of beauty and her existing and walking around and pointing to these things and coming to me and being gentle and my gosh, man, when you like, I came home one day from work and she's tiny and bouncing on foot to foot. And it's like, daddy, like, I, that's it. I did it. Like I, I could feel like the tape ripping as I ran across the finish line in first place. Like it was just wonderful. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is truly unreal. It's very apropos that during this episode, 15 minutes ago, my wife sent me a photo of Ailish wanted her hair curled this morning and there it is and there she is and just to go wow the world is more beautiful than I anticipated God is tenderer than I anticipated I can't believe how much space there is for connection and this varies daughter to daughter I happen to have a daughter who is driven almost exclusively by intimacy and connection and like her capacity to share special moments and that a moment isn't complete until it's shared and look at that, look at this, look at that, look at this, look at that. And then like snuggle and care for. And she also, she has, she has some very aggressive streaks and tendencies that we could get into. But I was just shocked by the otherness mm-hmm. for one thing of, I kind of, Having a son was actually more shocking to me because I kind of thought that I would mostly have girls because that's what God would do because I could, I know so much about raising boys by growing up in wild heart culture. That would be easy. La, la, la. <laughs> but a girl, uh, huh. but the experience of otherness raising a daughter, I think a few things that I've been just struck by of like, I feel aware that in raising her into womanhood, I am blessing and sending her into a different kind of sphere. We went up into the mountains the other day with some friends, and at one point, all the little girls and the moms went off together to explore this field. And the dad and I were just standing, looking at them with this shared experience of, there they go into the thing that is, hopefully, restored, potent, changeful womanhood. Mm-hmm. But it is over there. And so going, wow, I'm... S- and you're not over there. I'm sending you away. Mm-hmm. And therefore, this kind of like, but you will always have a deep union with me. And M has pointed out a lot of like, oh, from the word go, she has noticed that I, as a father, am shaping Alish's heart as a lover, as a daughter. She just noticed... 
from her first weeks, you're teaching her romance. And I'm like, that is completely true and unbelievable where it didn't start when she was old enough to go on dates. It started with snuggling her, holding her as she's crying. And we have this shared sense of, whoa, actually, she's not just learning the father right now. She's also learning the lover. And that is crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I have to admit that when I saw that we had a, a daughter, I felt a sense of relief that there is much in the way of womanhood that I, I am not responsible for. It's like, I kind of looked over at Susie and I'm like, oh, you get to be the one to have all of those body change conversations, high school, tough conversations, these these transitions into new phases of womanhood. I get to like support you in, but like from behind you. I don't actually have to be the point person for some of that stuff that makes me uncomfortable because I don't know what to do about it. And obviously that all changed when we had a son. But as I thought about a daughter, like it evoked these desires for, I want to be able to impart her with the blessing of a father, with the, the knowledge that she is delighted in and worth much and not to settle for less and that she has a ferocity and a tenderness. And I was, as you were naming, Blaine, there's, there's categories that overlap into my sons and my daughters. And so those categories feel like, I want you all to know the father like this. I want you all to know that you are warriors like this. I want you all to know that you are compassionate and good. And this is what a good story is. That doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl, but there are other things that I do think are specific to well, each kid's personality and to them being a son or a daughter that is like that field. Like, I want to encourage you as you go in this direction into a land I have never been and to a land I will never go that is navigating the world as a woman. But for you to know that you are not alone in it. And it's this piece that Susie and I have been wrestling with of like, as human beings, we are these deeply longing, needing creatures And as husband and wife, as father and mother, we don't get to fill that in each other, but we are meant to indicate that it can be filled. And so for those ways that I don't get to fill my daughter and her every need, I want to be indicating that it can be by God and by all of the little choices I get to make along the way. So yeah, my daughter has made me realize that I'm an immensely sentimental person. Not all the time. I certainly don't have that clarity when she's just asking for a thousand different things at bedtime. But when I can still picture like her chubby toddler feet in our backyard grass last summer, she's walking around and I was like, oh no, this moment's happening too quickly. Yes. I'm going to hit you with a heavy one. Here's the thing that I have noticed that has become specific to a daughter is that my daughter has very extravagant dreams and a limitless capacity for connection. Even my wife and I have been talking in the last several weeks over the shame I start to experience as I start to live into the verdict of it's never enough where I'll get up in the morning and there are there are parts of my parenting that would look like, wow, that family is just awesome. And I'm like, you just need to see the related exhaustion and the things that we miss and go, Jesus is the only way forward, guys. There's not like a system that you could learn that would fix this for you. But after a really rich morning with my daughter, we're talking making breakfast, two hours of playing, exploring, getting wildflower bouquets, coming back, and then... It was the first moment that I was like, I think I'm going to go do this other thing. But it wasn't communicated away. I just sort of shifted tasks without like talking with the family. And M communicated to me like, your daughter thinks you're coming back. You didn't really sort of explain that you were shifting. She thinks you're going to come back and keep playing with her. And I just got hit by that massive, it's never enough. It doesn't blah, blah, blah. Which, and I, which took me into the shame of it's never enough. And I it went, it doesn't blah, blah, blah. My personal favorite accusation. It doesn't blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. And so I, I should fill that out. It doesn't contribute to some 
realizable state of family stability. Mm-hmm. And, and then I realized, oh my goodness, how many women do I know, young women that are, you know, friends through Church Rams, friends who have the shared experience of not enough and too much and there's too much desire and they're all over the place. And not that they are, but they feel like, man, my heart just can go so many places. And I'm like, this is where I start to teach Ailish that, that you're too much because she experiences my shame at not being able to meet her need mm-hmm. and having the opportunity to not pretend that I am enough, but also to not be ashamed and go like, I'm sorry. No, I'm, I am not enough. but. I am learning confidence that God is enough, so we're okay. Your desires, your unfillable relational well is not a threat to me. And, and I get it and I miss it and I get it and I miss it. But there's just this, whoa, all of the things that I see in adult women are already there in my daughter. And it's all live ammunition. It's not like a junior version yeah. Uh, you get like a trial run? No. She has a fully developed heart that can be fully wounded right now. Right. Yeah. And that knowledge for me totally resonate. It actually allows you to go back inside and be present for a little while longer and to go in and meet that need in that moment so that it's not just a shift to being left wanting, but to go back in and be like, I know I'm not enough, but that actually means it's okay. I'm not meant to be. And so I can sit with you longer without it feeling like the verdict on if five more minutes is going to do it, it actually like can change and let you walk more freely in that interaction, which is a lesson we get to learn about a million times a week. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just tell her uh, and go up and be like, Ailish, I'm sorry. I was feeling tired after playing this morning, but I love playing with you. And you know what? Jesus never gets tired of playing with you. So I need to go mow the lawn in a minute. But what if we did 10 more minutes doing blank thing and this kind of like, no, I'm not pretending to be enough, but that's actually allowing me to make a move towards you. And it's not like, let me come in and spend the rest of the afternoon with you or let me spend no time with you. Right, right. Because you could sound like justifying never going back inside. Exactly. But actually the, the shame could motivate you to spend the rest of the day inside and then drink yourself to sleep. So sons, shifting to sons. I, I Long before I had um, one on this side of heaven, uh, I remember a conversation with my brother-in-law who has a large family, a mix of sons and daughters. And we were talking about women's rights. And uh, I think at the moment we were talking about their just the data on how they are not believed in a medical environment, like oh, women the, aren't? their pain level yeah. and what's going on, like how ignored they will be, particularly increasing for women of color. And we're at a moment in time where equality has not nearly been achieved, even in the Western world, and that slide just gets worse uh, into darkness as you go across the world. But... There has also been these movements that, like in human brokenness, swing the pendulum far back the other direction as a means of correcting. And I think we've seen that heartbreak in many different movements of like where, where violence is done as like the response to violence to atone for it. Like that is, that is the way the world without Jesus knows how to do things. And I think it's interesting because I'm going to flesh this out a little bit more, but my brother-in-law jumps into this conversation and says, he goes, I'm actually more afraid for the boys I am raising in this world than I am for the girls. And you're like, wait, what? This conversation we just had, like, what are you talking about? The, the vulnerability, the violence, the the system of oppression. Like, what are you talking about? How could you be? And he was just naming that, like, the world is also set up for the destruction of men. If you take a look around you, you know that to be true. And the pendulum swing for justice for women can be inflicting much damage on men. I'm particularly interested in the school systems where we have seen a massive rise of the performance of young girls in grade schools and high schools 
and the decline of young men and the massive medication of young men in those same contexts. And I, it just, it makes me pause. Something like that makes me curious to go, there was a narration, there was a story we were telling as a, as a nation, as a society of like, this is what men do, this is what girls do. And it caused men to go into certain jobs and career paths. And then there was a strong push against that in terms of the women's suffrage and in, and like, these are all very good things. I don't say that to be pedantic. Like they are needed and good. And when half of the population is then suffers from it, it makes you sort of go, wait, like why did the fruit of our push result in young boys withdrawing, not succeeding as much, not going to those places? And fine, statistics, you could say at this moment, the representation of men and women in different fields, like there's data for that and it's still skewed. That does not make the massive medication of young boys in our education system not exist. That doesn't make that trend of young men not excelling in academics not exist. So both can be true and make me curious. Same brother-in-law was actually dropping in this piece of, there was some country, I want to say it was either in Asia or the Middle East. And one of the tactics to put down the rebellion that was happening by the young men was to literally drop pornography from the sky. And they knew that the distraction of the male heart would actually be more effective to stop young men's momentum than anything else. And I thought that was just very intriguing in terms of the way that the world is set up for young men everywhere. Yeah, my response is, exactly. That is the exact thing that happened where, you know, we had, after Alish, we lost a girl pretty far along. So when I discovered that the baby after that was a boy, it was very disruptive. And the first thing I experienced was this surprising ambivalence when I looked around and went, there are so many fallen and broken men and so few glorious men. And it pushed me right into the stakes of Lewis's quote on the person in front of you will one day either be a creature of such horror that you would only meet it in a nightmare or a being that if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship and went, whoa, that destiny as it relates to men feels very real where when people ask, your son is coming, the first thing I actually feel is, is really defensive of my daughter and feel like some narrative of the superiority of having sons to having daughters was trying to be handed off to me and I would get really mad until caring. <laughs> Fred took the time to explain, whoa, what's getting triggered in you here? We're just saying, you've had a daughter, now you have a son, like, we congratulated you. Oh my gosh, you have a daughter. What is happening in you? And I went, okay, so there's one part defensiveness of my daughter. There's one part ambivalence about how many violent men there are. But there's this other part of when the pendulum starts swinging away from inequality towards justice, it doesn't stop in the middle. Israel is the best example of this because all Christians can come to the table and go, look, here was a nation of slaves who was violently oppressed for hundreds of years. And no sooner had they established themselves in a country than they started abusing everybody such that the prophet Jeremiah was ranting, going, you are leaving injustice unaddressed. You are scorning the fatherless. You don't feed the widow. You take wealth from the poor and just went, there is an inclination in humanity that when a people has been oppressed, when they get power, they act like other people do with power, which is to misuse it. And I could see the pendulum swing. And there's a great Atlantic article, if you want a depressing read, called The Miseducation of the American Boy, my friend Josh sent me. And it hammers home that it is not easy to be a man in the United States. And you mentioned schools and went, yeah, I'm sorry, where almost 13%, 12.9%, according to the CDC, of boys are dressed with ADHD. Uh, somewhere between 3 and 5% of girls are. 
and young men in the West commit suicide three and a half times, 350% more than women. And it makes you go, what is happening here? And the story in that Atlantic article about American culture just goes, yeah, very hard to have intimate relationships. As you said with pornography, boys will be exposed by the culture to forms of sexual harm very, very, very early on because that's become ingested by Western masculinity. Oh, a study that Dan Allender was telling me about, the age that they target is actually two to four-year-olds. Not 16-year-olds, not kids in high school. Two to four-year-olds. I have a two-year-old. He can't even say a full sentence. And broken sexuality is already looking for him. Yes. So this was the experience in discovering out a son was going, wow, it is not easy to want to be a wholehearted man in this world. In many ways, while the definitions of gender are expanding, the definition of masculinity, when they do studies on it, is narrowing and such that there's a study where only 2% of respondents said honesty and morality had anything to do with masculinity. Well, we're living in a world where masculinity is actually narrowing to mean more aggression, power, sexual dominance. Yikes, that harms all of the men that grow up in a culture that crushes their need as an image bearer of God to have vulnerable relationships and to be able to express emotions and went, wow, this is a big deal having this son and an environment that is not going to be kind to him in ways that I know very well that I don't know when it comes to growing up as a woman because I haven't done that. So it Mm -hmm. feels that much more personal. Yeah, you and I talked about this ages ago, but I'm going to play out the scenario for you. You are at the playground and a group of young girls comes and joins at the playground. You have a specific response. Now you're at the playground and a group of young boys shows up at the playground. You have a different response. Tease out those to me. Like what we, we began to recognize that there was a strong reaction in just the interaction with strangers of the two different groups. Do you remember this conversation? Oh, I don't. So if you want a particular outcome, you'll have to remind me, but I can say right now, yeah. if I were given that same prompt, yeah. there, there is the sense of, there is immediate suspicion and mistrust when a crew of boys rolls in and this vigilant, I will watch you. Mm-hmm. And the sense of, you are dangerous in a bad way. You need to be regulated. You're not welcome here. That's actually, I remember reading about Uh, One of the problems for teenage boys in the United States is that no one wants them anywhere, and it contributes to the sense of, you know, teenage boys roll into a 7-Eleven, and it's like, get out of here. Teenage boys roll into a friend's neighborhood, and the neighbors come out to watch them and go, whoa, what does it mean to grow up in a culture and in an environment where you don't? belong if you are a young man. How about the fact that male teenage foster kids are the least picked population on the planet for a home? Even though there's more of them in the system. Right. So I I just found myself like having that interaction in a playground and being really surprised by it. I'm like, I have grown up in a culture that is blessing masculine strength in the way that it is meant to be carried, that is blessing a man's need for connection, for an emotional capacity, and for what he brings to the table. And even still, a group of strange neighborhood kids could come to the playground where I'm with my kids, and I could feel my hackles raising. I could feel myself being like, like you're, you're guilty and not proven innocent. Like I don't like you being here and found myself like so shocked by that. So to take it home, when I found out we had a son, like I am thrilled and terrified because in those ways that I got to ship my daughter to my wife for handling some of these milestones, I am in the mud with my son. Like it's going to be he and I, contra mundi is what it feels like. And 
and the ways that my daughter evoked delight and vulnerability, my son feels like an external verdict on me. How he carries himself, how he is initiated, and his level of strength and capability actually feel like a reflection of me and a verdict on me in a way that my daughter doesn't. He is this report card in a way that the rest of my family isn't. Like in my family as well, that that's a that's one of the lines on my report card. But many of the others seem to be taken up by my son. And that really surprised me. Like, oh, so the fruit of that was that I experienced a level of frustration and anger towards him, even as like a few weeks old baby than I did towards our daughter because how he was doing was a verdict on me in a way that my daughter wasn't. And it, I had to like have this moment of our relationship as father and son in the same way that my relationship with my daughter, they're under assault from the word go. Yes. Here's another dimension. This really surprised me. So I may have mentioned in another episode that my son has had some issues with reflux and his digestion such that not as much after like a few developmental milestones, but especially in the beginning and even right now, he cries a lot and he experiences a lot of discomfort. And I was shocked to discover how little tenderness there was in me for him and went, "Uh uh-oh, this is something to pay attention to. Like, and I (laughs) very quickly was led down this, by by very quickly, I mean, over a course of a couple weeks, went down this rabbit trail of, oh, this really is a young boy and I am identifying with him as such. And I don't like the parts in me that are not strong. And to go, he is an infant. He's just not strong. He has a strong soul, but he actually right now is just revealing the dependency, the vulnerability, the tenderness of manhood. And I went, oh my gosh, this, here it is. The rubber is meeting the road in the territory of you won't treat another person's heart better than you treat your own heart. And I went, here's my son. And he actually is the parts in my heart to which I am the most unkind. I don't like the things that aren't powerful. He's not powerful. Uh, and, I, and it just went, yep. oh my gosh, I really have to push into this territory to create blessing, forgiveness, repentance, welcome for a boy who is just weak and dependent and vulnerable and to bless all that in him and just go, you're constant tears and need for constant comfort, that is okay. Versus the reactivity in me of like, just stop. I want my, I want my 10-day-old baby to man up. Oh, this is not good. <laughs> this is really not good. Yeah, I've been surprised by the data of infant boys need to be held more. They wean slower and they have a, a stronger need for those touches and a, that slowness away from mom in a way that like our daughter weaned herself. And the amount of anecdotal stories I could tell you were like the girl just says, I'm good, I'm done, I'm done with this thing. And like going, that is, that's the opposite of my expectation from the, the society's narrative of masculinity and femininity. The boy should come out and like already be you know, burning ants with a magnifying glass and the girl should be having a tea party. Like he needs touch and exposes those vulnerable places for me that as you're naming, like he's, he's just a few weeks old. You can't tell him to man up and to like stop crying. But yes, it is a doorway into those places as it was a doorway for me into, oh, I'm already contending for the male line as I interact with you and what I want the story to be. And my son and my daughter are so different in ways that their nature is very different. I come home to my son naked 
and standing on the top of like the backyard slide and roaring. And nobody, nobody did that for him. Nobody modeled that for him. His sister sure, certainly didn't do that. And he loves roughhousing. He will throw himself head over heels off of that slide at me with full confidence that I'm going to catch him, wrestle with him, and adore him. And I very much want that narrative to be true. And it often is, but it makes me keenly aware of the pain that I feel internally when that adoration turns to scorn at the ways that he makes me feel vulnerable or his vulnerability makes me feel angry or he feels like the report card and I need him to be impervious so that I will be impervious. I need him to be strong so that people will see me as strong. I need him to be successful so that people will see me as successful. And I'm like, I've got a two-year-old. Mercy for all you parents out there. Like, I want the young men who've been listening to this and stuck this through to like, this has been such an eye-opening experience these last couple of years of having really, really little kids to see the parts of my heart that I have windows to now that I didn't have before. I have doors into now that I didn't have before. I'm like, oh my gosh, you reveal this about me. You reveal my anger towards society. You reveal my vulnerability that I don't like. You reveal how I see God easily this way, but not at all in another way. Like it is really good and really hard at the same time. No, a couple of the things that I would add. One of the most interesting dimensions in raising a son is I, you know, I was aware right away with the daughter, I'm not sufficient to the task. But there was something specific in a son that exposed that reality because I know how the universe works, where the father raises the son and sets him on the throne. And I just went, it's the way of the universe for in the sense of the soul, the son outgrows the father. And so to go, yeah, I know I don't have enough for Aeneas, because I know he's actually meant to outgrow me. And there was this really substantive sense of like, wow, this really plays into the, as he gets older and what we're experiencing now, you know, already with just a three-year-old is like when the power challenge starts, there's this fascinating dynamic of, oh, actually you are more powerful and meant to be, but I'm actually just looking at the father who's more powerful than either of us. So no, this isn't a debate. Like uh, that line is not in question. It's the father who holds it. But this really, I think, a deeper pass engaging the reality where I need to know God the father and know what he's like. Because now I have a son who is more than I am and is meant to be. So it's going to take sort of like both diving into the Father over the course of our lives to actually do the thing that that relationship is meant to do, which is for him to exceed the legacy he has so far.